So what, what are we looking at? We're looking at um, the Lake District Fells in the distance. So that's Great Dodd, the Dodd Scar running down the side. That's where my hefted sheep live. Uh, passing around, you can just about see Helvallon through the clouds in the middle. Oh yes, amongst those sort of rainy clouds, because I mean it's pretty, pretty that, sort of windy, stormy day, but that's right. of sunshine. So, so we're not far from the farmhouse behind us, which is an old barn built in like 1860, 1870. And I, I'm lucky, I can sit on the, if I sit on the far side of my kitchen table, I can see the, the top of Helvellyn a lot of mornings, which is nice. Oh, wow. Hello, I'm Liv Bolton. Welcome back to The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire you to make adventures outdoors a bigger part of your life. The Outdoors Fix is produced in association with our friends at Ellis Brigham Mountain Sports. I'm absolutely thrilled that in this episode, my guest is James Rebanks. He's a shepherd, farmer and writer, and the author of the best-selling book, The Shepherd's Life, and new book, English Pastoral. James's farm is in the Matterdale Valley near Oldswater in the Lake District, and his family has farmed in that stunning area for 600 years. He owns a large flock of Herdwick sheep, some belted Galloway cows, pigs and chickens. In his new book, English Pastoral, James passionately calls for farming to become more sustainable and nature-friendly. He speaks about how in the past 50 years, technology and fertilisers used on farms had a hugely detrimental effect on nature and wildlife. So he's been changing the way he manages his land by planting more hedgerows and trees in his fields, abandoning fertilisers, building ponds, allowing the river to flood some of his farmland and focusing on the health of his soil. His efforts are paying off and he's seeing a wonderful return of wildlife to his farm, including more otters, fish, herons, wetland birds, insects and wildflowers. While the outdoors has been a pretty constant feature in his life, James is now making nature and wildlife a bigger part of it. I spent a morning with James exploring his beautiful farm and seeing the changes he's implementing. We then recorded the episode in an old sheep barn. I wanted to find out more about James's outdoors life, the realities of being a farmer and shepherd, and why he thinks it's so important to have nature thriving alongside farming. I hope you enjoy this episode and don't forget to listen out for James's tips and the sounds of nature at the end of the podcast. So here's James. Hello James, thank you so much for being on the Outdoors Fix podcast. It's brilliant to have you on it and can you just describe where we are right now? Thank you very much for having me on firstly. Uh, so we're sat in an old um, what we would call a hoggest uh, or a field house which is a, basically a stone barn and we're sat inside just under the arch near the, the coin stones and out the window we're looking onto Little Melful and we're looking across one of our old hay meadows and down to the beck and some woodland and a pond in the distance. It's probably the coolest, one of the coolest locations I've ever recorded in. We're in the Matterdale Valley in the Lake District, um, quite near Oldswater. And in this barn, you said there's a barn owl um, nest above us. That's right, uh, about 12 or 13 feet above my head on the, on the beam is uh, an old shipping, sort of shipping wooden box with a hole cut in in one end. And yeah, we have a family of barn owls that, I, th I think they have multiple roosts, but this is one of their roosts. And this year they got pushed out of the nest by some jackdaws that 
that oh. hijacked it. But last summer they reared two or three chicks and yeah, they've been one of the best things about the changes we've made to the farm is that the barn owls are really thriving just because there's more food, there's more voles. Oh, it's beautiful. And we're sheltering from the wind because it is fairly blustery out there. Um, can you tell the listeners a bit about your farm then? I mean, we it's a 300 acre farm. It's 195, oh, acre, 195 acres that we own as a family. And yeah, in total about 300 acres because we, uh, we either rent annually or on a sort of seasonal basis other pieces of land that make it up to th 300 plus acres. And then we, in the distance, can't see from where we're sitting now, but uh, up on Great Dodd, particularly in Dodscar and uh, I think it's Browndale the next day over. That's where our hefted sheep are on the fell, so we have that as well. It's a traditional Lake District family fell farm, so there's a two generations, three, ge three generations involved, and yeah, not the easiest way to make a living, but in other ways a sort of huge privilege to live in such a beautiful place and to be part of that. Your grandfather and father farmed this part of the land. Yeah. Um, they didn't have the farmhouse which you have now, but you've, your family has farmed in this area for generations. Yeah, that's right. So just just over the just out of sight, over the edge of Little Melthal, there's a village called Dacre. Um, and yeah, the earliest mention on paper that we can find of our family is in 1420, and they're in the wow. village of Dacre. So as the crow flies, that's about three minutes away from here. So we're, we're obviously not very adventurous people. <laughs> I can understand why you wouldn't really want to leave this area though, it's absolutely stunning. So you have Herdwick sheep, which you say you've hefted to the fells. Um, how many Herdwick sheep do you have? So we have, um, it's a good question because it changes by the day at this time of year and I haven't had a count for about a week, but somewhere in the 500 region. Um, and at this time of year we, uh, we send the, the male lambs to the lowlands, so we have some land that we rent where the male lambs go down the hill. Uh, the daughters of the flock that from this year, the ewe lambs have gone on to an allotment at the far end of the farm and yeah the ewes will go back to the fell until, well, until winter. And you have belted Galloway cows as well? We do have belted Galloway cows and we have a couple of British saddleback pigs and we have a few chickens and four sheep dogs and yeah and I think as time goes on I think we're going to try and bring even more diversity of grazing and, and landscape management in. Um, not least because I like eating all of those different things, but uh, they also, have, if they're managed in the right way, can have really beneficial impact on these, these farms. A lot of my listeners will obviously recognise Herdwick sheep. Um, they're the most beautiful creatures with their grey-blue fleece, their really white faces, sturdy legs. What, what's so special about them for you? So for me, uh, what's special about them is really what's special about any native breed. So we have this amazing history in Britain of very very specialized local native breeds and herdwicks are, uh, are are that for the lake district so we know that their dna goes back about a thousand years plus some of it is viking dna so they obviously brought some scandinavian sheep on the boats with them uh, i think they may have been maligned in the press the vikings i'm not sure how that it was all rape pillaging and all the rest of it i think there was quite a lot of farming and trading and fishing going on as well mm -hmm. and farming uh, and, and some of their ancestry is probably ancient british sheep as well but they, um, you could easily prove that they're the perfect sheep for this landscape because if you put any other sheep on those mountains, they're going to struggle. They're going to lose flesh and they're going to start to die. And what Herdwicks have evolved to do over that thousand years, partly by natural selective pressures, partly by shepherding selection, is they can cope with six or eight months of cold, wet rain on a high lakeland fell on minimal, veg really poor vegetation in a way that no other animal can. So. Why are they important to me? They're basically the reason that people could live in these valleys. They were the key to surviving here. And that doesn't give them a free pass to be everywhere or munching everything off at two inches above the ground. 
there's, issue, there's, issues, there's issues to be thought about, particularly since the Second World War, about whether they're everywhere and perhaps slightly the wrong way. But no, it's a breed that are absolutely integral to farming around here and they're, they're amazing creatures and they're my pride and joy. Trying to breed, trying to get anywhere near having the best flock of Herdwicks in the Lake District is really my uh, great love of my life. Well, at this time of year, which is autumn, you are sort of focusing on sheep sales, is that right? That's right. So uh, the pattern was quite simple, really. This whole farming system revolves around the growth of grass in the spring, summer and autumn in the mountains. But then you're going into a hungry period at the end of that. So it's called the harvest of the fells. So basically, the, the young spare surplus stock from the fells is prepared for the sales, coloured, dipped, prettified in all sorts of different ways, taken to the auction marts at the bottom of the valleys at places like Penrith and Lazenby and Cockermouth or Broughton and sold to farmers down the hill who will either fatten them or keep them for breeding sheep. Um, and actually many of those sheep uh, stock the, the sheep farms of the south of England, of Kent, of Sussex, of Somerset. So a lot of our trading systems and our social contacts and who we know is absolutely around those sheep. So we have friends uh, all over the UK that come up in the aut every autumn all my life uh, to buy sheep off the fells in that harvest of the fells. Yeah. So at this time of year, apart from the sheep sales, what is a typical day for you? So a typical day for us on this farm is uh, we spend the first couple of hours of the day going around the different flocks and the different uh, herds of cattle and the pigs and, and that's partly, uh, it, well, the pigs get fed, nothing else really does, we're very much grass-based now. But going around, and we call that shepherding, you, you're checking there isn't a lamb caught by its horn in, horns in the fences. You're checking that there isn't a ewe with pneumonia or something. Uh, and you're just checking that you're a good neighbour, that your sheep haven't in the night, haven't gone over the wall and destroying the church, churchyard <laughs> or somebody's garden. So yeah, we do that for the first couple of hours. They would then uh, we'd have a bit of breakfast um, and then we'd probably be doing jobs like either taking the lambs off their mothers at this time of year or starting to put them on better ground to get them ready for those sales or sorting which ones to sell and which ones to keep because the the smart way to run a fell flock really is although you're selling lots in the autumn you're keeping the best you're trying to keep the best daughters of the best ewes you yeah. they're your crown jewels they're mm. your wealth in the future was that a pigeon or a barnow it looks like a kestrel ah, something just flashed. Yeah, so yeah some something flashed past the barn window yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. a kestrel yeah i didn't yeah. see what it was yeah, so and, and then we'd, uh, like a couple of days ago, I was reading my Herdwick Tups, which is putting the, the sort of radley red uh, iron oxide colour on them. And then a lot of, uh, we breed a lot of what's basically pedigree, hopefully high value breeding stock. So there's a lot of salesmanship at this time of year. So this week I've had three or four of the top Herdwick breeders have come to the farm and they're trying to find where the perfect ram is to, to buy from me to put on their flock. and. That can go one of two ways. They can come and think mine are rubbish, and or they can. I, I think I've some quite nice ones for this autumn. So yeah. you hope that they that they'll go to the sales and they'll buy one of yours. And they hope uh, there's a bit of hype as well. It's like selling anything else in this world. You you want them to look as good as possible and to yeah leave nothing to chance. So I have shepherding friends who, when you go to look at their tops, they'll make sure that they run up just the right hill to show them off in just the right really? way. And then, <laughs> Yes, it's about money, but nobody, nobody in our world sort of talks about money. That's just the way that you keep score. What you're really trying to do is to be respected and thought of as somebody who does those things well. Mm. Another, I mean, another part of your farm work, I suppose, now is that you're really putting so much effort into bringing nature back to a lot of your farmland or, you know, yeah. more nature than there has ever been before. Yeah, that's right. And there's sort of two sides to that, really. One, 
one because I've become convinced in the last 10 years that that's our responsibility that's our job and we, we bear some responsibility for making the landscape bearer and less full of nature in the past and also because I, I, I now totally believe in what the soil scientists are telling us and the ecologists are telling us about the need to make farming to make farming work with natural processes as much as possible so uh, you've had a walk around with me you know I'm obsessed with soil I can I can both for Britain about healthy soil and and how you do that is just more intelligent planned grazing and yeah and how do I get my my land full of voles and things for that castor that just flew past well I need enough hedgerows and I need enough sort of longer grass so yeah those those chat that that's become part of what I call my shepherding in the morning so yes I'm looking at the sheep but I'm also weighing up whether it's time to graze a field or not uh, whether it's time to, to lay some of the traditional hedgerows that we've got that need doing or whether it's still a little bit early because there's too much sap in them yeah it's and and I think that's without being too uh, silly about it I think that that's a good life that makes me want to get up in the morning and water on my fields and and that makes me think maybe we maybe we haven't got everything just perfect in the past, but we can we can do the best we can right now and and hold our heads up and say, do you know what, we're we're pretty good stewards of this place. Well, I was going to say it's obvious that you completely love being here and this you know making this your life. What are some of the special moments? Um, sometimes it isn't the rarest things. It's some there's some quite common nature things that I absolutely adore. Um, I love swallows. So the swallows coming back to my sheep shed every year just gives me a massive kick. I, I, I can, my granddad was like this as well, and my dad to an extent. I can stand leaning over a gate and have a cup of coffee for 25 minutes, 30 minutes, just watch the swallows mm -hmm. coming in and out. And I think, do you know what, this is all right. This. Um, and there was one pair, one pair of swallows on our farm, maybe two, 20 years ago. Now we're up to about 20 plus pairs, just cause, partly because the cattle have come past, come back, partly because we're managing in a way that there's way more insect life. And partly because we built a modern sheep shed, sometimes it isn't the sometimes it isn't the cool nature thing you yeah. did. It's the they just need somewhere to nest. Yeah. And we, we built a new sheep shed. It happens to be exactly what they did in exactly the right place. Um, yeah, but the barn owls coming back gives me a huge kick, and they came back as a result of fencing off some of the river banks, and there were more voles suddenly. And then I have to say, I've got a real soft spot for otters. So we had an otter with two um, kits, isn't it? Otter yeah, kits, kits, yeah. yeah. I, I had an otter with two otter kits last year and I got within about 10 feet of them one day wow. by mistake. And that's cool. Was, things like that take your breath away and you think, there's enough room for me here for me and my sheep and an otter. Let's, let's do the best we can, you know, to, to get along with each other. And sometimes I think I've come a long way and in other ways, I think not really. My granddad was pretty much like this. <laughs> Well, it's so, so lovely that you are, you know, those moments where you can just stand and look at nature yeah. and be in that moment. I think you're right. And I think some of the great farming writers that I admire, people like Wendell Berry in America, they talk about beauty mattering. And I think it does. I think beauty and craft matter. And they're things that we tend to laugh at. I think they're nothing to do with being a modern sort of businessman. And it's true. Beauty doesn't pay the bills. But I, you have to live in a place to do, don't you? You have to... And if you're making a place uglier or you're making it bare or you're making it have less nature and I think that robs you of some of the joy that you need in your life as well. So yeah, if we can find a way to earn a living, it doesn't have to be the, the greatest, richest living. If we can hang on in this place as we have done for a very long time and look after it well and share it with barn owls and otters, then that, that works for me. 
There must be some times, though, in the depths of winter where it's, it's not an easy life, I can imagine. Um, I mean, there's, there must be hard moments. No, there are days when I come in this barn just to get out of the, the rain and the wet and uh, you get a bale of hay and you might stand for 20 minutes and you think, I'm not going back down to that. <laughs> and yeah, and you might have chill blades on your ears and your hands are swollen and look a bit ugly and battered. And yeah, and you look at people... Um, Maybe in the houses across the valley, in nice warm houses, working on the computers. Do you think? Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure I've got this 100% right, but but I, I wrote in my first book, The Shepherd's Life. I wrote about. In some ways, I think you get, there's a feeling of elation that you get in the good times, if you've properly paid paid <laughs> paid your dues in the bad time. And I always feel I do get a sense of elation in spring, and I think it's partly because I've served my dues in a way. You sort of, if you've suffered 80, 100 days mm -hmm. on the trot of cold, wet weather. And then the sun comes out and in April and the swallows come back. Mm. There's a sort of lightness and shade to that. There's a sort of, my, my theory is you have, to, you have to go to some of those depths to get some of the heights maybe. You have had some sort of handbrake turns in, in your life a bit. Mm. But you're, so your grandfather farmed this land mm. and there's some beautiful passages in your book, in English Pastoral, your new book, where you're sitting on the back of the tractor with your grandfather and he's showing you all these different parts of the farm he must have been the biggest influence do you think in in, in yeah, wanting he, to have this lifestyle yeah it was he, from the age of about eight to 17 when he died he was probably my hero my role model and uh, I, I now know he wasn't a perfect husband or a perfect dad and a few other things about him that make me qualify some of that but yeah, at that age, I could only see the good, and the good was he just had this man that that seemed to know everything about his world, that seemed to fit in his world really, really well, that cared about things that seemed cool to me, like he, he knew where the otters went under the fence and where the fox's set was, and he, he'd lift me up to show me the swallow chicks in the nest, and and yet he was still a good and, maybe not the greatest, but a, a, a decent and a good farmer that was respected, and and tried to be a decent man. He seemed like a decent man to me. And um, yeah, and nothing, nothing at school or nothing in books came close until I was quite considerably older. Yeah, because you, <laughs> you write in your books how about the age of 15, you had no time for school. No. It was all about the farm. <laughs> yeah, it, it just seemed like a sort of a kind of weird madness. Like, who were these crazy middle class men and women who think they know better than what I than I do what I should do why do they want to trap me in these really ugly, <laughs> ugly boring buildings doing stuff I don't want to do um, and I know what I want to do why are you locking me in here and, and you'd have lessons about I don't know human rights or something and they tell you that sort of nobody should be imprisoned or something and you think I'm sitting here <laughs> let me out let me, yeah, let me go home and of course that's silly that's 15 year old logic but um so that's, yeah, all I could think was just let me the hell out of this place. I don't want this. And, and I, I maybe a little bit, not, not a lot of that's on me, I guess. You've got to take responsibility for your own silliness. But I also thought they didn't really care about or, or think what we were was important. So there's a bit of sort of kickback pride in that as well. Like, you don't think what we are matters. I'm not going to respect what you think matters. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get out and I'm going to be like my granddad. But then, you know, five years later, you're working at home when your farm's going broke and you think, I don't know if I've thought this through properly. <laughs> yeah, good. so you left school at 15 and then you worked with your father yeah, on the farm. Yeah, for nine years. Yeah. yeah. And then 
you did have this period of your life where the farm and the outdoors became a, a little less um, at the front of your life, the forefront of your life. My relationship with it did change and it was entirely personal. Uh, a lot of far anybody on the farm listening to this will know, but I basically got into a situation where I couldn't get on with my dad. And I was on a small farm in the middle of nowhere, that's a pretty nasty <laughs> dynamic to get into where it goes wrong. And I was becoming unhappy and I was becoming a bit surly. And I have, I see this in sometimes in young farmers, they get a little bit trapped in the family grind and it doesn't do them any good. It starts to affect their personality and makes them a bit meaner and surlier than they should be. And I could sense that was happening to me. Plus the farm was struggling. Uh, the sort of mirage that everything was gonna be fine that had been there when my granddad was alive disappeared and suddenly there's just me and, and my dad working long hours, it's dirty, it's hard. Uh, and I didn't really want to escape it, but it just got kind of, that relationship sort mm. of broke down and got really tense and I thought, just for my sanity of nothing else, I'm gonna to have to get out of this. Mm. And I, it was actually one of the saddest things in my life because I thought I was walking and when I went back to do evening classes, I got into, bizarrely, got into Oxford University. I went off to do other things. I felt absolutely broken in a way and sad because I thought I'd walked away from the great love of my life, which is this farm that I wanted to be part of. I thought I was, it was the day I left the farm, I thought I was saying goodbye to it forever. Hilariously, I was back within about a month working on the farm at weekends and nights, <laughs> but, but it was different. I, I sort of, and for a few years, I thought my dad might sell the farm, like to retire, and maybe I'd, maybe I'd let that happen. And, but it slowly came back together. I, I was more, two or three years past, and I was doing more and more back at the farm, and I was working for nothing, and I started to have a flock of sheep on the farm, and me and my dad got over our sort of petty issues, and. And then it sort of changed and I'd sort of catch my dad smirking at me as if to say, this, is, this game isn't over, we're still here and uh, maybe we can find a future for it. And that's really what, what we've been doing for the last 20 odd years. Um, yeah, getting back on it, getting a house back on it, which you've, you've seen, uh, trying to work out how's, how's this gonna work? How does this work in the 21st century when it doesn't make much money? How do I get my family there? And then, you know, I'm older and wiser and read a lot of books and newspapers and watch a lot of TV. I'm not unaware that there are issues with farming and we have to think about those as well. So just going back a bit, um, because when you decided to take your A-levels and then you managed to get into Oxford yeah. to read history, when you were at Oxford, did it make you realise about, did it give you a different perspective on your life and, your, and the way you'd yeah. been living? Yeah, massively. In some ways it made me love it more. So that sort of huge irony, isn't it? You suddenly everyone's like thinking you're cool because you got into Oxford and you're clever and you're going to go and do something else. And you're sitting in a library and yes, you are. I was doing well, I was getting great marks and I was obviously hopefully smart enough. Well, I was smart enough to be there. But you're actually sitting in a library looking out the window thinking, actually, I love, I love a bit of fun. Mm. I don't want to give up on that. I don't want to be separate from it. Um, so I was sitting in those library thinking, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the best I can here, but I have, then there's another trick. I have to work out how to get, the, how to get home. Mm. And actually, I think my dad sensed it straight away. Um, so he was, he was just sort of quietly in the background, sort of hinting, don't, don't worry, just keep, keep doing that thing. You'll earn more money that way. And I'll keep the farm going and we'll, we'll work it out someday. And, and then, yeah, the last 15 years of his life, we sort of did. Um, I, I found a way to get back here. I'd earned some money doing other things and I did manage to come back and get, we eventually got planning permission to change a barn into a house, which meant we had a house again on the farm because we'd sold my granddad's house when he died to settle his estate. And, and yeah, I think nobody got more pleasure out of that than my dad. He knew I'd gone through the mill a little bit to get from A to B to C to D. 
Um, but I came back and he was as proud as punch, like really proud. Sorry, you're nearly crying and I'm nearly crying. <laughs> <laughs> too many cry too much crying in this part right now. Yeah. Oh, and it, it, that distance just to have a little bit of time to think about it more, I, maybe. I, I think so. Farms farms don't give you a lot of distance. I know. Uh, something that happened with a lot of our farming friends was in the foot and mouth epidemic when they lost their, li lost their livestock. Mm. I know that was like the, ho the most horrible thing that ever happened to those families. It also meant that they had a strange thing that had never happened to them, which is to have more time to think, more time to just take the foot off the gas and just go, do we want to do it the same way forever or do we want to do it differently? And even whichever, whichever thing they did, either go back to the old ways or do something different, I think it was quite an important moment in a lot of farming families' lives that we knew, just to give them time to think about it. Mm. And maybe some think, actually, I don't want to slog on like that. I don't want to do the same thing forever. And others, I think, miss, just missed it and thought, I, w I want to do it forever. But they went back with a sort of renewed energy. I'd, but yeah, I think that's a farming life can be very all-consuming. It doesn't necessarily make you the sort of wisest or most rounded or have a sort of wide perspective on things. So. So yeah, even if I didn't want to go and do other things necessarily, or I wanted to come back and I couldn't for a long time, I think it probably did me quite a bit of good. It was opening my eyes to how other people live and, the, and how hard other people work. Um, farmers, farmers think they work hard and everyone else. Do you want to know a secret? They don't really. <laughs> uh, the hardest people I've ever met for work are the people who get up at five, like four in the morning, five in the morning, get on trains for two hours to London, sit in a cubicle, do oh, soul destroy and work till six at night or later, then they go, that's harder. I'm it is harder. Most of my farming friends would crack in about a month if they had to do that. Uh, there's a lot of good in a farming life as well as a lot of slog. So uh, alongside when you came back to farm the land with your father, you were also a UNESCO expert advisor. Yeah, I had a sort of funny career in which I didn't really know what to do. Um, I kept looking around thinking, what the hell does everybody else do um, that's cool where you get to learn stuff? Uh, and by hook or by crook, it took about 10 years. I ended up doing uh, a lot of economic impact studies for World Heritage Sites, and I started, I'm quite a simple person, really. I, I, if people, I want to know whether something works or how it works, or, and I like taking things to bits and studying them and trying to work out what's, what the hell's going on in places, and that, that work got the attention of UNESCO and, yeah, for about a 10-year period, including now, I still do a, a few days a year for them now. Um, they use me in all sorts of ways to, to try and understand how tourism affects people in bad ways and mm -hmm. good ways. And so they sent me to amazing places in just for short trips usually. There's never a lot of money. So it's sort of, James, you've got four days, go and have a look, tell us what's going on. So I've been to places like Malawi. I've been to ru very rural villages in China and oh. Zambia, all sorts of places. And again, did I, did I think I wanted that life? Probably not. It was part of trying to work out how to earn good money mm. to get back to the farm. but. Do I regret it? Not a bit. I've met the most amazing people of every colour and creed and type and religion around the world. Uh, and I've loved that. I've got friends all around the world who have maybe see things differently and yeah. And then you come back and you realise what we are a little bit more clearly maybe as well. So you now have the farmhouse, which is not too far away, yeah. where your wife and four children live with you. And that was a bit of a dream for you, wasn't it, to, to build your own yeah. farmhouse on this land? So yeah, the, all, all farming families have a mess basically with inheritance and succession. So the mess in our family was when my granddad died, we sold uh, the farmstead, which I loved, and the little bungalow that he, he and my grandmother lived in. Uh, and they did that to 
clear his estate and to sort it all out basically. But that was when I was 17, so I had no power over that. That's sort of the elders of the family had to do what they had to do. Um, but suddenly we had a farm without a farmhouse on it and a farm that I'd, dre I'd been increasingly dreaming of being on someday, but there was nowhere to live. And, and I had another problem, which is I worked for my dad and got paid next to nothing. So you have no money, no capital. And you think, well, even if we could get planning permission, I couldn't afford to build a house. So yeah, life taking me off in, in another direction, having another sort of professional life alongside the farm meant that eventually I could get a mortgage and could get planning permission. And yeah, I think people come now and they go, oh, James has got a great life. He lives in this house and he's got his sheep and he writes books, but it's kind of only just recently worked out how I dreamt it would. Uh, for the preceding 20 years, I felt like a failure because I, <laughs> I couldn't get back to the farm. I couldn't crack it as a writer. I didn't know how to, and, and we, we didn't live on the farm. Mm -hmm. So for, uh, yeah, anybody listening to this that thinks I'm annoying and successful, uh, reassure yourselves that for most of my life, it hasn't felt like that. It's, um, it's been more of a, a frustration really I couldn't couldn't make the life happen that I wanted to so if I, if I do seem joyous when I'm taking you around the farm it's like wow I can't believe I pulled this off oh. yeah well that's awesome and also to you know that you've made it and you've been rewarded with it and it's fantastic that's right. your new book English Pastoral is all about how you want your farm and other British farms to produce food more sustainably and let nature live alongside that. And why is that important to you now? Was it not like that in the past? So the, the world I grew up in had lots more nature than the world I became an adult in in the sort of 90s mm. and 2000s. Um, but we didn't give it a lot of thought. It was there. This is a crude summary of what I say in the book. It, I think it was sort of there by accident, or, or the nature that was there was there as a sort of byproduct mm -hmm. of a farming system which created a patchwork, which needed hedgerows and walls, uh, in which you didn't quite have the mechanical or chemical power to clean everything up. So there's scruffy bits in the stackyard and there's clumps of nettles. And yeah, you're going around like headless chickens, quite a lot, a lot of you, because there's more people on the farms trying to, trying to boss it all, but you can't. And in a nutshell, what changes through my adult life is that the me mechanical tools, the tractors, the combine harvesters, the mowers, become infinitely more powerful, infinitely stronger, infinitely faster. The chemical arsenal that we, we offer to farmers means that you don't have to go out with a scythe and chop the thistles anymore. You can just spray them with a spray on the back of the tractor or a knapsack. And you have, without anybody really noticing exactly the totality of what's happening, you have a, a, a real tidying up and a stripping away and a loss of things. And, and you, you, you could argue, and I think you'd be partly right, that farming culture thinks of itself right through that period as being the stewards of the land, but has gone from being not bad stewards to quite poor stewards mm. as they tidy everything up. And nobody in farming or very few people think that the clump of nettles matters. It's the annoying pile of weeds you haven't got to tidying up. So when you spray it and it disappears, you don't think anything of it. It's only maybe 10 years later when the ecologists turn up and they go look there's no nettles there's no thistles in this landscape and that's what that's what all the butterflies were living on or you've drained the field you think you did the right thing you made it better for mowing you made it better for growing grain or whatever it might be and then someone comes along and says actually there's no wetlands left in your valley <laughs> and you think oh i was 10 percent of that or so there's all these little moments sort of cumulative little moments where we've drained a lot of places and we've uh, we've used synthetic fertiliser in lots of places and yeah it made the grass grow, it made you look like a better farmer, it sort of meant that you could keep making a good living. 
and you didn't really think about the fact because you sort of didn't fully know that there used to be 90 species of plants and flowers growing in that meadow in your grandfather's prime and then in, by the time you're 25 30 you're down to five species in mm. the meadow um, so there's a sort of tension between what's good to try and make a living according to sort of American or industrial farming logic um, and th and what nature really needs and there's all sorts of contradictions and tensions and I mm. ironies in that but I got to a point in my 20s and 30s where I'm looking at a farm and thinking hang on a minute it's getting worse isn't it it's getting more it's definitely getting worse for nature and you can only ignore that for so long. You can tell yourself, well, I have to do this. I need to do this. I've got to do this to pay the bills. And lots of my family friends are stuck in that. Um, but ultimately, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I, there are 3% of the upland hay meadows that are left. And I have 30 acres of the 3,000 acres that remain. Whatever my bank manager says, I think I have a responsibility to look after the hay meadow. I've got to work it out. I've got to... Um, I, think, I, th I think we've had this sort of idea of what progress was for farmers. And we, many of us bought into it. We bought into it by going to the supermarket to buy cheap food or we designed bigger machines for them to use or whatever else. All of it, lots of people were involved in that process in different ways. I don't think anybody was actually asking, does this work long term? Is this all actually good for soil? Is there enough biodiversity surviving in it? We've all had sort of blinkers on. Sort of, we've been specialised doing different parts of this picture. And... I don't have all the answers about how we, we, we resolve all of those co uh, tensions and contradictions, but I do know on my own farm what I want to do. Mm. And I want healthy soil and I want really diverse fields. And I know I can put in miles and miles of hedgerows back in with a little bit of help from some of the conservationists. Uh, I can make sure there's more trees on our land and I can change the becks and I can have more ponds in the least productive bits of the farm. And I set off with quite minimal uh, aspirations on that, but the more we've done, the more stuff's come back mm. and I, I actually really believe in this now I'm, I'm I'm almost evangelical about it I think this is the more I do the more I realize how wrong we would got how far away we would got from really looking after the place properly and I just don't believe that we can keep going down that sort of highly intensive highly industrial route and survive long long term it isn't a good system for farmers it puts most of them out of business it puts most of them in debt buying the inputs it trashes soil it, it knackers biodiversity. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to bore you to tears here, but I don't believe that that is the future anymore. I think we've been a little bit deluded and a little bit naive in following that path. And then you're into a quite an awkward place because you and I and everybody listening to this podcast, we have to go, OK, what, what does each of us do mm. to make this different? Mm. Well, it's, it is completely obvious when we were walking around your farmland how passionate you are about bringing back different species and what you've been doing with the becks. I mean, just talk us through what you were, you're telling me about the becks, what yeah. you've been doing in recent so, years. So when I'm 10 years old, the water board, I think my granddad called all conservationists the water board, but the, <laughs> uh, the water board turned up and they, in their wisdom, decided that our old wiggly rivers, or semi-wiggly mm. rivers, because we probably fiddled with them a little bit for drainage, uh, should be straightened and they should have wooden uh, higher banks like, right. like canals yeah. and wooden you saw some of these the yeah. wooden canal boards up the side why why that anyone ever thought it was a good idea to spend tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds putting canal boards on lake district rivers <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i do remember that my granddad thought it was mad mm. there's just no need for this what are these people doing 
Um, anyway, fast forward to now, um, we now know that's disastrous. That speeds up the, that speeds up the river. It scours the bed out deeper. It means you've got fast uh, sort of fast flow of water rather than a mixed sort of slow bits, fast bits, rifts, all the riffles, all the rest of it. It's not good for rivers. So all of the river ecologists that are now all over farms and all of our river systems are saying we've just spoiled it. We've made it all wrong. So what have we been doing? We initially slowly, because we didn't buy into this and it sounded like sort of hippie nonsense, mm. uh, initially slowly but n increasingly bought into this, we're taking away the canal banks. Mm -hmm. We're letting those rivers escape back into their floodplains. We, my real passion at the moment is building ponds. Ponds are awesome. You, <laughs> you build a pond within about three months, you've got new bird species you've never even seen before. So we've had little egrets and green sandpipers and a host mm. of other things. Uh, and just more common stuff like instead of having two, maybe two herons on the farm, the change to the grazing and the change with the ponds and the rivers means there's like five, six herons knocking around. So you can see mm. how this works. We're mm. building it up from the bottom of the food pyramid. Uh, and you've been fencing off the riverbanks so that yeah. you've not been allowing your livestock to graze there. And what's there been the effect of that? So the sort of logic of our farming in the 1990s was we're going broke, so we can't afford to put new fences up. Let the three fields become one field. Just pick the old fence up. Let the sheep in. They're in there. Instead of uh, rotating through three fields, it's down to one big ranched field, which is called set stocking. And we now know it's pretty disastrous because the sheep would just go around picking all the good stuff leave the bad stuff so it's not a good way to manage grazing or soil um, so when the river conservation people start, start really working on me about 15 20 years ago they say we'll help you put the field pattern back in but instead of where it used to be we want decent maybe 20 30 meter wide 10 meter wide in some narrow places strips uh, so you get your fields back in a pattern where you can graze mm. the, do the grazing better but we want these river corridors we want this for for woodland or we want it for willowy scrub or thorny scrub and and that really is probably the single biggest converter of us to thinking this stuff works because uh, initially we got we'd gone out and you see an initial burst of good stuff happening and then we started to wonder whether the, the strong grasses were just taking over and choking everything out and at that point we got a botanist friend of called rob dixon of ours and he came in and said that's because you've abandoned it and abandoned isn't the same as wild uh, and then i started getting interested in grazing ecology which is basically the science of how do you make something uh, get wilder, get scrubbier, get mm. more wooded, but in a way that genuinely mimics the wild past. And it turns out that using cattle, so we brought cattle mm. back on the farm, occasionally using pigs, mix some of the ground up with pigs. Um, so we're sort of learning how to mimic a lot of that natural processes. And by, by putting the cattle back in, we've seen this huge pulse of more, di more biodiversity of plants. So they're basically doing the job of wild aurochs or cattle in the past mm. or bison. And the plants that live on our farm, and we have over 200 species on the farm, maybe 210 species, they all evolved, if you think about it, in a system that had grazing. Mm. So grazing per se is not bad. Uh, we just need to get more of a patchwork. And I, because we're small farmers in a patchwork landscape, we can't do what some of the bigger states are doing with the rewilding thing uh, because we'd have so little stock, we wouldn't make a living. So I think we have to engineer a patchwork using, fence, using fences, basically, creating areas where woodland can happen, creating areas where ponds can be, um, and if the, the great British public, your listeners, are prepared to back us through their taxes through paying for conservation works, then I think it's the job of people like me to step up and go, OK, I think I now know how to do this. So put me a fence around the pond, put me a fence around the river, and I'll manage it in a different way to the field next door. Um, and what we're trying to do on the farm is to make it so that you're never more than about 300 yards away from another habitat, mm. either a hedge or a pond or a rewiggled river or 
or maybe just a hill end that droughts off that isn't particularly good for grazing and I'll just put a fence around it and say right that's that's where the flowers can do their thing and yeah it's itty bitty it's itty bitty it's a little bit messy there's huge clumps of nettles that once would have driven me mad down the hill next to one of my ponds at the moment and yet they were full of caterpillars about a month ago and I'm thinking, all right, they're not next to the road. Change your perspective, yeah. <laughs> Change your perspective. Don't go get the sprayer. Uh, <laughs> let there be a place where there's nettles. Uh, so you can sense in me that there are tensions on this. It's not easy. It's not easy to make a living from a piece of land, and you can't always do the perfect thing. But, yeah, it's just switching that mentality up a bit, isn't it, to, to do a bit of both. So what, as listeners, and what can we do to back farmers to do this and and is it to do with the way we shop for food is it to do with you know back in conservation like you say yeah it's it's massively to do with how we how we eat so everybody you me everybody listening to this program we're spending about 10 percent of our household budgets now on food we used to spend 35 40 percent now i don't think we should go back to 35 40 percent because we're all struggling to pay our bills and uh, all the rest of it uh we probably as a society spending too little on farming and food um, uh, and what happens then by default is that we're putting supermarkets like five companies in charge of all of our food supply if they then don't care about how food's produced if they just source from all around the world from the least sustainable systems then you're creating a kind of race to the bottom so yeah, we do we do need to be way fussier eaters way fussier shoppers and, and starting to ask for more and not everybody can afford this but i sus suspect lots of us you know your listeners listening to this program probably can we need to be a little bit more discerning about where we buy stuff from the f the, the shorter you can make your food supply so you're buying as direct as you can from a farmer or secondhand through a butcher who you can persuade to care the more you can use your buying as leverage to um, and if you're wondering how you make contact with a farmer go on twitter go on facebook there's loads on there find the ones that whose values you like yeah. who are doing the good stuff and Sometimes it costs a little bit more to shop that way or it's a little bit less convenient with delivery, home deliveries and things, but most of them will deliver to home. Uh, often they'll help you, they'll talk to you and they'll tell you how they're doing things. Uh, a lot of them are like me. Some of them are better, frankly. Some of them are doing better nature stuff than I am um, and they're inspiring me to do more. And, but probably the big one right now is if we sign on the dotted line of this American trade deal, so we're coming out of the European system of regulation and environmental payments, if we sign on the dotted line of an American trade deal, then we're by definition driving our standards over time down to the American level. And for all the problems with farming in Britain, it's way better than what's happening in the American Midwest. Trust me, I've, I've been. They use something like five times as many antibiotics on their animals as we do. They're massively concentrated sort of animals into welfare conditions that we don't like or, or, or are illegal here. We, we can't do that. We can't ask our farmers to compete with that and then get cross at them for having less nature. It, it's it's, that is just like two and two equals four. It, it will happen. So we've got to we've got to flex our muscles in our voting. We've got to write to our MPs, and we've got to be better shoppers and eaters. And probably the last one is more spiritual than anything else. But and not everybody has a garden. I know that. But we should grow something, even if it's on a windowsill. Start to grow some lettuce or something in a windowsill box. Just doing that starts, I think, starts to connect you mentally to where food's coming from, the kind of choices people are having to make. And I think it gives you a little bit more empathy for farming and understanding about how difficult it is. Um, yeah, try and grow something or try and get on a farm. Lots of farms do open days. Mm. Um, not easy if you live in an inner city and you've got low income or something. I, I, I get it. But uh, for those of us that can afford to, try and reach out to farmers. Try and go to farm shops. 
Uh, try and tell them what you like and what you don't like and try and find the ones you believe in and back them. Well, I definitely understand the, uh, the growing things yourself because over lockdown I've grown courgettes, cucumbers, tomatoes and I've got about two or three of each. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I do understand what you say by that. You know, you, you do realise the effort it takes yeah. to grow something and, and you have more appreciation of, of that food. I definitely. So. I mean, I'm, I'm tasting a lettuce leaf sometimes like it's, you know, an oyster. <laughs> but um, just because I grew it. Yeah, and it's... Uh, it, it reminds you how difficult it is to get a decent crop to live from. So for all I'm saying, we can do farming better and we can change it for the better. There is a sort of truth at the centre of it, which is it's, it's fairly hard work. It sometimes involves some fairly hard decisions about how to use land or not use it. And I don't think we should forget to respect farmers or appreciate them. I think that's the other part of this. Yeah. So a lot of my listeners and guests obviously see the outdoors as a place and the Lake District to come hiking and to look at the beautiful views and all of those things. I can't imagine that though that hiking's a massive priority for you, is it? Do you, uh, do you ever get out on hikes? I, I, don't, I don't do like hiking as a leisure thing unless, mm. unless one of my cousins comes in each August and says, right, you're coming you know, Scarfell or Pike or something. Um, but not very often. Well, occasionally as a family will climb the fell behind our house, but. I do like farmer walking. I'm really farming as I go. I'm looking at the other people's sheep or I'm looking at how the land's managed or I'm looking back at my land from the top of the fell. What I tend to do much more of is uh, I do go up the fells to gather my sheep a lot. So yeah. uh, I'm, I'm getting my fix of fells that way. And I actually love working on the fells. There's something really special about working your dogs up there. And particularly if it's misty or cloudy and like now November gathers and you can't see anybody around you. And oh, that's awesome. But what I do, my walking mostly is around the farm. Mm. There's an old saying that I think, I think the old saying was the best fertilizer is the shepherd's foot. Oh. Uh, and what, what it means if you unpack it was the good farmer walks his land all the time and is aware of the length of the grass and the health of the soil and is thinking about how to do it better. So I, I keep that in mind and probably five or six times a week I'll, I'll do a mile or two walk around my farm and, or longer. And I'm just, I'm doing what my grandfather did really. I'm looking at the stock and I'm thinking, have they been in that pasture long enough? Is it now time to move? Um, are they healthy? Is there something starting? I mean, my granddad was an absolute wizard at uh, if there was a health problem starting in the herd or the flock. It, he he didn't discover it when there were animals dying. He discovered it when there's a slight cough in one sheep out of 300. I mean, he's just because he spent an hour leaning over a mm. gate and he heard it cough and he started looking at it. And there's a level of sort of sort of intensity of looking at things there that that I'm trying to get back to as well. When you're up then gathering the sheep on the fells, what time of year is that and, and how long does it take? So we, uh, because our fells in a sort of a peatland restoration project, they're not on there through the winter. Um, so they come off in November and they go back in start of May or mid-April actually, the, the hogs, the, the yearlings. Um, so we, we gather six times a year, I think we used to gather eight times a year, but it's, it's probably about six now. Uh, and that's to come in for shearing, that's to come in to take the lambs off in September, that's to bring them in in November for the final gather. And yeah, they're some of the finest days that we ever have. There's, there's a certain look that lads, have, lads and lasses have that gather fells. Where, uh, and it reminds me of me when I was 15 at school, there's a sort of freedom in it really, and a beauty to it. Um, if any of your listeners, I'll tell you somebody good to follow. There's a lad called Joe Richardson. He's quite a bit younger than me, but if you want to follow a fell shepherd that loves his dogs and loves his life, look on Instagram, Joe Richardson. <laughs> he's, a, he's a star of a lad, a really nice lad. My dad liked him. And there is a real passion. And I know I've, I'm friends with the Blands uh, that live in uh, Grassmere, not houses, and we're at West Ed. And 
them lads just it's like a religion to them that you'd be on the fells as often as possible and there's a they just love it absolutely love it and um, and I wasn't born and bred a fell shepherd my grandfather didn't have fell rights but I I can see why they have that look in their eyes when they talk about the fells I, I've got the bug now here yeah. when you're up there what I mean does it make you feel different to a normal day when you're down here when you're up in the fells yeah, I think so. And it's, it's, it's probably a version of what your listeners would have when they go fell walking or mountaineering or something. Yeah. It's, it's kind of special. I, I think the thing that makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when I'm doing it is you think there's no, apart from maybe an odd quad bike, there's no machinery, there's nothing new about it. It's literally what our ancestors did a thousand years ago. And there are hardly any places around the world where the farming's completely unchanged for like a thousand years. I think it's remarkable. It's, I, I know environmentally commons are complicated. There, there probably needs to be some change over time on commons, maybe not all of them. There's probably a way to create a patchwork as there is in the fields. Um, but I know when the Lake District, Lake District became a World Heritage Site, part of it, it's about the commoning system and the pastoral system. And yeah, I may, I may be very passionate about nature, but I'm also very passionate about that system surviving as well. I think it's unique and beautiful and special. Uh, and then you're into a, as you usually are when you try to make the world a better place, you're into a sort of complexity, aren't you? About more than one thing mattering and finding a way for more than one thing to be better or survive. I've seen your daughter this morning <laughs> on bareback riding on a horse, on her pony with a, um, a, a, a carton of milk. I mean, it's brilliant. So with, with your kids, I mean, what are the things they love doing outdoors? Do they love helping out on the farm? Do they love, is it riding? What kind of so things my, they get up my, to? My eldest Molly's obsessed with ponies. She has a couple of farm ponies. It's one of the perks of being a farm kid. You don't know, uh, you very cheaply can have a horse yeah. <laughs> without, you know, without having wealthy parents like everyone else needs. Um, so she's obsessed with the ponies. <laughs> um, my second eldest B has a sheepdog pup at the moment and she's, hope, oh. she's hoping to train that. So. We have a problem on the farm, which is my sheepdogs won't work for anybody else if I'm away. And I obviously have a writing life and occasionally have to go and do the work for UNESCO. Mm. So I think she wants to be the top dog when I, well, not uh. to, that wasn't meant to be a pun. <laughs> she wants to be the top shepherd when I'm away. So she's hoping to train this sheepdog called Tosh. And then my son Isaac loves coming around the farm. He's quite interested in his nature and um, he's a bit of a book nerd as well. So maybe he's got to take on the other family business, <laughs> the writing. And then our youngest Tom is two and he's a little uh, bruiser. And he loves just going with his dad anyway on the farm. And uh, yeah, I've a horrible feeling. He's the most stubborn child I've ever met. I've got a horrible feeling he might end up being the farmer. And um, that might be time for me to retire when Tom's old enough. <laughs> <laughs> what would you like the future of this farm and, and the farming community here to be? I would. I, I very much hope, and, I, and I'm optimistic that this can happen. I very much hope that they find a future and I think it'll, it'll involve, as it always has done, some evolution and some change. It probably requires uh, a lot of families to go through a process like ours where we become slightly more convincing stewards of the landscape than maybe we have been in the post-war period uh, to learn about new things, to add to the old things we know. Um, I also think that uh, farming diversity and farming traditions matter greatly. I write about that in, the, in my book. So I want those flocks of sheep to survive as well. Um, uh, yeah, I think, I think it can happen. And I don't think people, the rest of the world's gonna fall out of love with the Lake District anytime soon. So there's, there's plenty of money there. We just need to work out how to live in that mix, I think, and how to engage other people in what we do and, and, sh and uh, 
yeah, be able to make a convincing argument that we really are the stewards of it, that we can look after it for the rest of you. James, who are the three people who have inspired this life for you and why? Um, I think there's three. So the first one I've already spoken about is my grandfather. So just having, just having a, a sort of very cool role model that was, the, that was there to copy and learn from as a boy was very important to me. Um, later on, I'd add my dad into the mix. I'm using two people as one, I'm shooting <laughs> it. So my dad has a similar effect in the last 10 years, to be fair. Um, probably the next biggest influence on my life is probably Ernest Hemingway. So one of the books I fell in love with when I was 17 was The Old Man in the Sea. I think it spoke to me because I, I thought it was really about me and my granddad, even though the, the old man's a fisherman in the book. Um, and that made me want to be a writer. So the life I have now is partly because of that moment where I read that book and I thought this is just, this is the coolest thing outside of farming I've ever, I've ever seen. I want to do that. And then probably the third one is probably in the last 10 years, I hugely admire the American, I think she's called an urbanist, Jane Jacobs. So for anyone that doesn't know, Jane Jacobs lived in New York at a time when they were sort of modernizing it, trying to put these huge highways through it and build skyscrapers everywhere. And Jane Jacobs is the genius who lives there, who's actually turned, wrote this amazing book, was it called The Life and Death of an American City? Something like that. And she basically was an amazing critic of uh, modernity. She basically said, hang on a minute, you're making this worse. Mm. You're, you're, these highways are a disaster for people that live around them. Nobody really wants to live in the skyscrapers. They want to live in the old uh, brownstone buildings mm. in New York. And she pointed out that a mixture of new and old is way more sustainable. And uh, really the most important thing in any kind of landscape, urban or rural, is that uh, people are able to live in them. And there's a mix of people of different ages and that communities are healthy and they work together and anyway I could go on and on but Jane Jacobs is pretty amazing and although she didn't really write about farming mm. she really had a huge impact on me thinking about it on farming and had a huge impact on the book that I wrote as well just now. What tips would you have for people who would really love to learn more about wildlife and nature, the kind of resources that have been helpful for you? Is there any books and things like that that you found great? So, um, yeah, loads of good books. Um, uh, I found particularly useful two of the rewilding books, to be honest, even if I can't do exactly what they would like to, me mm. to do. Uh, I quite like the book that just won the Wainwright Prize, the rebirding book by Ben MacDonald. Mm. Um, have interesting discussions with Ben. I can't, I, I don't entirely believe in his total uh, solution for the British countryside, but that doesn't matter. There's a significant chunk of the book where it explains about how, to, how we've diminished the food supplies for animals and what species are the best and how much scale you need to feed a viable population of any kind of bird. So that was useful. Um, uh, likewise, Isabella Tree's book, uh, Wilding, uh, and what they're doing at NEP. I've been to NEP uh, once so far. And that's really interesting just to see how those processes work. And I'm, I'm looking at it thinking, well, I can't do exactly this, but I can do a version of it around my, my fields. Uh, I, I've, the last two years, I've become obsessed with watching YouTube films. So 
Prior to that, I had no idea, mm. but there are amazing sort of regenerative or nature-friendly farmers all around the world who have got these sort of YouTube channels, sometimes sharing really mundane stuff, like how to set an electric fence or how to plant a hedge, but, uh, but sometimes sharing amazing stuff. So one of my heroes on that is a guy called Greg Judy in Missouri, who's, for my money, an awesome farmer. I mean, right. like the wildlife on his farm, just because he's grazing in a different way. He's mobbing up these 350 cows and he's rotating them out twice a day through these fields. But if you want to see wildlife on a farm, his is amazing. So I'm inspired by that. And then there's uh, a guy called Richard Perkins, who's an English guy who happens to live and farm in Sweden. And he has an amazing YouTube channel where he's talking about how to make a small farm pay by diversifying and mm. using chickens and pigs and reaching out to consumers who have the same values as you. So. I'm starting to sound like a marketing consultant now. No, they're, no, they're useful. They're, so they're, they're, they're good places to go. But um, yeah, and then a lot of the, uh, I like a lot of the nature writers and uh, yeah, and read, I, I'm quite a nerd. So I read books about mycorrhizal fungi and soil and things like that. There's a lady called Kristen Olson wrote a book called The Soil Will Save Us, which is a really good starter okay. for anyone who wants to yeah. learn about soil. Tips for walkers in the lakes, yep. things that really help farmers yep. and that are, you know, m mean that we're good users of the countryside. Uh, the big one is probably, uh, well, the two big ones are dogs on leads, mm. please. Um, even if you think you're on an empty fell, it's often that you're not, you can't tell, you don't know whether of the next hill there's a ewe and lamb or something. So anywhere where there might be livestock, please, dogs on leads. My Facebook. Uh, my Facebook is full like two or three times a week. I probably have 200 farmers friends and two or three times a week one of them has a uh, sheep worried by a pet dog mm. and there's always a story about how the dog's never done it before and how the mm. people thought it was a nice dog and uh, just dogs get excited around livestock and it happens. The other one is litter. There's been real <laughs> a lot of mess this summer uh, as people have flooded back out to the countryside. Maybe people who aren't used to coming to the Lake District and things a little bit more responsible so there's horrible amounts of litter around at the moment and a few idiots that have been burning down trees at places like horse water and stuff and you think hang on a minute mm. so clearly some of those people have got some growing up to do but I, I don't imagine they're listening to your podcast but yeah uh, and then uh, I, just just the usual things of shutting the gate and sort of being respectful and things um, I think maybe the toughest thing people ask me on Twitter is what do you do if you find a sheep that's ill or dead mm. uh, People, I think walkers find it hard to know where the nearest farm is. I don't have a perfect answer for that, but if you don't do it in your hundreds, but if you want to contact me or, or on Twitter, or you'll find other farmers sort of locally on Twitter, might be the best way, or Facebook to just say, hang on a minute, there's a sheep there mm. I'm worried about. Okay. Um, often they're not, often they're okay, and people are just sort of worrying unnecessarily, but it's, it's still good that they care. Um, yeah, and I think, I think what would really help us is if people are doing antisocial behaviour with litter or dogs off leads or something, just for other more responsible walkers to police it a little bit. Mm. I know it's difficult, but just to say to people, that's not really mm. responsible. So helping us to stop things going wrong would be great. And, and the, the last thing to say is the overwhelming majority of people, 98% of people, I would say something like that, are, are kind, responsible, they talk to us, they're friendly. And I love sharing the landscape with them. So yeah, no grumpiness here. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of farming is through family, isn't it? Yeah. That you yeah. inherit a farm or you are introduced to it by your family. Yeah. If you're interested in this lifestyle, but you don't have those connections, are there ways to get into it? So, so there are ways to get into it. And again, I'll be honest, back, back in my youth, I thought the only people that made good farmers were people that were born and bred to it. I now know that's a load of old rubbish and I was wrong. And 
One of the people who's convinced me of that is actually uh, Hannah Jackson, who's at Red Shepherdess. You yes. Know. Yeah, Hannah's, Hannah's great. Didn't come from a farming background. Ended up working for me a bit. She now does other things. But um, yeah, it's blatantly nonsense what I used to believe, that people can't become farmers. Many people can. Uh, the way that Hannah broke in is quite interesting. She, she sort of persuaded a farmer to give her work experience, I think, initially. Um, and then has done sort of part-time work on various different farms and it's just tried to build up, sort of make contacts and build up experience. Um, I don't have a, I'm probably the worst person to ask because I was born in a farming family and I, I just came to it the way I did. Um, but yeah, I think I would maybe start with social media or something like that or, or find a city farm or maybe do some kind of course at an agricultural college. And if you show some, some skill and some knowledge and that you're serious about it, I think through those kind of routes you'll start to make contacts. Um, but it isn't easy, and I think that's frustrating. I, c I can now see that what we really need is lots of new farmers with lots of new ideas that, to keep things mixed up and freshened up. And I don't have a perfect answer for it. I think, I think as a farming sector or industry, I don't really like those two words, but whatever we are as a sort of group of farmers collectively, I think we need to think about that because a lot of farmers are getting old and we need to find ways to get more people in. So I'll make that my homework. <laughs> <laughs>